right, here is what we're going to do. You can put a holder in 2 Samuel 19 is where we're going to be this morning, but we're going to begin in the New Testament in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. Let's go ahead and make your way to 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. And this is what we're doing this morning. So in our context in David's life, they're in the midst of a civil war. So David's son Absalom sought to and was successful in seizing the throne, the kingdom, from his father David. In that narrative that leads to a civil war between father and son, those who are supporting David and those who are supporting Absalom. We sat in that narrative last week where Absalom was violently executed in contrast to the will of David and all of that. So if you need a refresher, you can re-listen to last week's message or just read the text yourself. But this is where we're going to begin this morning. David is now returning back to Jerusalem as king. So I've titled this morning's message, The Return of the King. But what does that make you think of the moment we say the return of the king? Lord of the Rings. Bless your heart. We all know how to pray for Stacy now. I love you people. Makes you think of Jesus. But that was a good cultural note. So as we talk about the return of Jesus, the New Testament uses the idea of Jesus is going to come. Jesus is going to appear. Jesus is going to return. When we sit in that doctrine, that teaching, it is very clear that that is central to having faith in God and being saved from your sins. Jesus died upon the cross. The Father sent the Son, God in human flesh, to die for the sins of humanity on the cross. The singular evidence of that is his resurrection from the dead. And after Jesus rose from the dead, he gave final instructions to his disciples before he ascended to heaven. And that promise as he ascended is that he is going to return again. Now, that's easy. That's central. We can all say amen and agree to that. But now when you sit in the teachings and the systematic theology of what that looks like before Jesus does return and what his return looks like and what the events look like after his return. This is where a lot of division occurs in the body of Christ, and it ought not to be. I can confess to you as a young believer, as I was learning Calvary's system of theology, which we are futurists, premillennial, pre-tribulational understanding of eschatology. If you know what any of that means, then you know what that means. If you don't, it doesn't matter this morning because we're not going to stand in that. Because what we are going to sit in and what we want our minds wrapped around is what does the Word of God have to say in encouraging us in what we are to be doing as we look for the return of our King. As we sit in 1 Thessalonians this morning, it gives a great framework for that. But as we go back into 2 Samuel and we're watching David image for us in different ways Jesus, we're also going to walk through a variety of personalities 
and how they're dealing with David returning as king. And it's going to help us understand some of our own perspectives and some of our hearts as we're looking for Jesus to return as our king. So, picking up in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verse 9, we're going to read through the end of this letter. But it's just fabulous in how concise and encouraging it is and what we ought to be focused on, not in getting in fights and disunity within the body of Christ. But it says, but concerning brotherly love, you have no need that I should write to you. For you yourselves are taught by God to love one another. Is that true, yes or no? Are you taught by God that you're supposed to love the men and women and kids that are in this room? Are you taught by Jesus that you're to even love and pray for your enemies? Simple. This is, this is why Christianity does not have to be hard. Following Jesus, it does not have to be hard. The commandments of men often muddy things up. We are taught by God to love one another. And indeed, you do so. Watch this every day in your lives, loving each other. Toward all the brethren who are, all, who are in all Macedonia. But we urge you, brethren that you increase more and more, grow in that love, and that you aspire to leave a quiet life, to mind your own business, and to work with your own hands as we have commanded you, that you may walk properly towards those who are outside, those who are not believers, and that you may lack nothing. Is that easy? It may be hard to walk out, depending on personalities and context, but is the teaching easy? No, our encouragement as followers of Jesus is to seek to lead a quiet and peaceable life, not to be contentious, not to be violent, not to be, you know, revilers and, you know, arrogant and all those kinds of things, and we all find ourselves in that in different ways. Again, as a, as a young believer, as I was learning these things, I had a lot of arrogance and pride where I'd pick up a stone and, you know, I'd question somebody else's eschatology, end-time beliefs, whether or not that they were even saved because they had a different understanding that I did. Something that I grew out of, praise the Lord, but he led me in the instruction that we're reading here now. Verse 13 says, I don't want you to be ignorant. I don't want you to be without knowledge, brethren, concerning those who have fallen asleep. So talking about those believers who have died, lest you sorrow as others who have no hope. For if we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so, God will bring with him those who sleep in Jesus. For this we say to you by the word of the Lord, that we who are alive and remain until the coming of the Lord will by no means precede those who are asleep. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a shout, with a commanding shout, with the voice of an archangel and with the trumpet of God. And the dead in Christ will rise first, that we who are alive and remain shall be caught up, snatched, For those of you who ever heard that rapture, the word rapture is not in the Bible. This is where it is. The word for caught up is harpazo in the Greek. As the Greek was translated into Latin, raptus, that's where we get the English word rapture from. It is a snatching. We shall be caught up together with them in the clouds to what? To meet 
the Lord in the air. As we get back into David's context, there is a group of people going to meet him and come back with him as the reigning king in Jerusalem. And thus we shall always be with the Lord. Therefore, comfort one another with these words. Again, I love the instruction. It is simple and it is straightforward. Those who have already died as believers in Jesus Christ, we are told that when Jesus comes back with this shout, this commanding voice, the voice of an archangel, the trumpet of God, that those who have died, their physical bodies are going to be resurrected and reunited with their spirits. To be dead now as a believer is to be in the presence of the Lord. So there is no soul sleep or anything like that. The dead go and they are with Christ right now. There is a resurrection of their bodies. And at the same time, if you were alive when Jesus returns, those who are remaining and alive, they will be caught up, they will be snatched, and everybody together is going to meet Jesus in the air. Now, what happens from that point on? Again, subject of a lot of discussion that we're not going to get into this morning, but what's the exhortation? Comfort one another with these words. Encourage each other. Those who are going through uh, the mourning associated with death, we have hope. We have hope that our eternal life is in our eternal God. And there is a comfort in these words. If you're struggling in the circumstances of culture and time in which you live, comfort one another with these words. When the Lord comes, every believer from all time is going to be with him forever. But concerning the times and the seasons, brethren, you have no need that I should write to you. You yourselves know perfectly that the day of the Lord so comes as a thief in the night. In other words, Jesus is teaching, nobody knows the day or the hour. We are to always be ready and looking for his return. Verse 3, for when they say peace and safety, and it's they, it's those that are on the outside. When they say peace and safety, that sudden destruction comes upon them as labor pains comes upon a pregnant woman, and they shall not escape. But you, brethren, you're not in darkness, so that this day should overtake you as a thief. And all this imagery, you, sh you are all sons of the light, sons of the day. We are not of the night or of darkness. That's what we've been saved out of. Therefore, let us not sleep as others do, but let us watch and be sober. For those who sleep, sleep at night, and those who get drunk are drunk at night. But let us who are of the day be sober, putting on the breastplate of faith and love, and as a helmet, the hope of salvation. If you're familiar with 1 Corinthians 13, it's known as the love chapter. Paul is encouraging the Corinthians. I will show you a more excellent way and goes through this definition of what love is. At the end of that teaching, he says, faith, hope, and love, these three remain forever, but the greatest of these is love. Same encouragement here. Paul's using the same words. Over, over your heart, and again, this is the, over your soul, over your spirit, put on that breastplate of faith in the God who has created you, who has saved you, who indwells you. Put on that breastplate of love. May that be an overarching umbrella and foundation of your relationship with God and with other human being. And that, that headgear, that protection. Life is hard. You are going to get challenged. You're going to question your own salvation. You're going to doubt. Keep that helmet of salvation upon your head. For God did not appoint us to wrath 
but to obtain salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ. He is the one who died for us, and whether we are awake or we are asleep, we are dead in Christ, we should live together with him. Therefore, comfort each other and build one another, just as you also are doing. And we urge you, brethren, to recognize those who labor among you and are over you in the Lord and admonish you, instruct you, and warn you that you esteem them very highly in love for their work's sake. Be at peace among yourselves. Now we exhort you, brethren, warn those who are unruly. Does following Jesus include giving warnings to bad behavior? Absolutely. Warn those who are unruly. Comfort those who are faint-hearted. Uphold those who are weak. Be patient with all. See that no one renders evil for evil to anyone, but always pursue what is good both for yourselves and for all. Rejoice always. Pray without ceasing. In everything, give thanks. Why? For this is the will of God in Christ Jesus for you. Do not quench the Spirit. Do not despise prophecies. We are told in Revelation 19.10 that the testimony of Jesus is the spirit of prophecy. When people prophesy, we are instructed in verse 21, test all things and hold fast to what is good. There's a great saying, chew the meat, spit out the bones. Keep what's good. What's, what's junk? What's not helpful for you and your soul? Get it out of your life. I have, and again, even if it's not dealing with like doctrinal things, I have a, I have a guardrail in my life. When I start to study subjects that I disagree with, I have a trigger in my heart. I start to get angry and in my flesh towards those opposing views and those who hold those opposing views. So I focus on studying what the truth is. I focus on studying Jesus. Yes, there are times that I need to apply myself and study an opposing view, but I have a check to only study that so far as I'm able to remain gentle and having faith in the Lord. The second that I start getting agitated, it's, a, it's an alarm bell for my own mind and my own soul, Blake, stop going in that direction because that's just going to lead to pride and arrogance in my life and it's going to lead to words that come out of my mouth that ought not to come out of my mouth. Verse 22, abstain from every form of evil. Now, may the God of peace himself sanctify, set you apart completely, and may your whole spirit, soul, and body be preserved blameless at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. He who calls you is faithful and also will do it. Brethren, pray for us. Greet all the brethren with a holy kiss. I charge you by the Lord that this epistle be read to all the holy brethren. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you. Amen. Easy encouragement and understanding in regards to what we ought to be about as we wait for the return of our King. I, I think that that's really easy. It's basic. It doesn't have to be any more complicated than that. And that's the foundation that we're supposed to rest on, upon who Jesus is, his character, his nature, his teachings, 
And that's as we gather together as the body of Christ, whether it's in one building or the universal body of Christ throughout the world, that we don't wrap our fists around doctrines that are secondary and start punching our brothers and sisters. I have been guilty of it. I preached myself and warned myself all the time not to go down those roads because I always find myself in trouble with God and needing to confess to him and repent and asking for him to change my heart and my mind. We start here this morning because now turn back to 2 Samuel chapter 19. As we step into the culture and the circumstances that are going on in David's day, there is disunity in the children of God. Absalom has been successful at stealing the hearts of men and women, supporting him in opposition to his father's leadership. In that, he has specifically stolen the hearts of those of the tribe of Judah. You look at when David is appointed and called and anointed by God through Samuel as the king of the nation. That is God's calling and appointing on David's life. Then there is a recognition of the culture. First of the tribe of Judah looking at David saying, David's our king. And for seven years, he's king only of the tribe of Judah, not of the other ten tribes that we'll sit in as we get into this morning. But later on, the other ten tribes come and also anoint and appoint David as their king. So he's now this king of the unified tribes of Israel. Bring it into our own context. How many states do we have in America? 50. Are we all in unity? Eh, sometimes. More often than not, we're not. Right? There's stereotypes for the South. There's stereotypes for the West Coast, for the Mountain West, for the Plain States, for the East Coast. We have all these cultural stereotypes within our own unity in the United States of America. But in our, un in our unity, there's division all over the place because there's different perspectives. That's the same idea that we're stepping in in this context in David's life. As we begin chapter, uh, well, in verse 9 of chapter 19, Absalom is dead. The tribes of Israel that have come against David have all returned back to their tents. And now David there is in Mahanaim. And now what do you do? He's been rejected as king. The tribe of Judah and the tribe of Israel all appointed his son as king and recognized him as king. That appointed man is now dead, and now this, there's this vacuum of power. Do we want David back as our king? Yes or no? That's the question the culture is sitting in. So in verse 9, it says, all the people were in dispute. They're arguing throughout all the tribes of Israel. And again, these are the northern ten tribes, including the tribe of Benjamin, the 11th tribe is the tribe of Judah in this context in the numbering, and the tribe that's not being numbered is the tribe of Levi because Levi was dispersed through all of the tribes in their service to the Lord. So here's all this disputing and arguing going on in Israel saying, the king being David, he saved us. He rescued us from the hand of our enemies. And when you sit in the context, again, to the north, the south, the east, and the west, David was a conquering general and a conquering king, and he subdued all of the enemies around. He saved us from the hand of our enemies. He delivered us from the hand of the Philistines, and now he has fled from the land because of Absalom. 
But Absalom, who we anointed over us, has died in battle. Therefore, now therefore, why do you say nothing? Why, why are you deaf and silent about bringing back the king? So in the t- 10 tribes, they're having this ongoing discussion. What do we do about our leadership? The nation of Israel is the one who asked for a king rather than God ruling over them. They want a king in the military power, in the government structure, in the economic structure. This is what they're looking for. This is what they want. And now they're having this internal discussion. Why do we not bring David back? What are you waiting for? Why are you being silent trying to solve the disunity that's going on? Verse 11 says, so King David sent to Zadok and Abiathar, the priests, saying, so these are the two priests that are in Judah, in Jerusalem, saying, speak to the elders of Judah, saying, why are you the last? Literally, why are you at the back position? I'm going to start yelling, okay? I'm not yelling at you. Well, maybe I am, but probably not. Why are you the last to bring the king back to his house? since the words of all Israel have come to the king, to his very house. You are my brethren. You're my bone and my flesh. Why then are you last to bring back the king and say to Amasa, are you not my bone and my flesh? God do so to me, and more also if you are not commander of the army before me continually in the place of Joab." So he swayed, literally, he stretched the hearts of all the men of Judah, just as the heart of one man. So now Judah is in unity in their thoughts. And what do they say? So that they sent this word to the king, return, you and all your servants. Then the king returned and came to the Jordan. And Judah came to Gilgal to meet the king, to escort the king across the Jordan. And Shimei, the son of Gera, Benjamite, who was from Bahurim, hurried and came down uh, with the men of Judah to meet the king. There were a thousand men of Benjamin with him. And Ziba, the servant of the house of Saul, and his 15 sons and his 20 servants with him. And they went over the Jordan before the king. Then a ferry boat went across to carry the king's household and to do what he thought good. So there's a lot of characters and players here. The northern ten tribes are the first ones to start this, this, this discussion in agreement. All right, the guy that we appointed over us is dead, so I guess we got to bring the old guy back. Real confident vote there. Zadok, or, uh, David is looking at his own tribe, Benjamin. Why are you in the last position? Why, what are you waiting for? He's, uh, he's making concessions. Amasa is one of his nephews from a different sister. Joab is another nephew. Amasa was appointed by his son Absalom as the general. So he's looking at the general that was on the opposite side of the battlefield from him in a battle that David just won. And he said, why don't you be my general in place of Joab? Why does David want to replace Joab? Because Joab violently killed his son. David has major tensions with Joab. But in the politics of the day, David can't do anything against Joab without causing more disunity in the culture. So as king, as leader, he has to make a lot of reconciliation. He's got to make a lot of concessions. He is giving assurances and he is offering pardons as we watch this. 
Let's look at Shimei. So Shimei and Zeba are going to both come up. But as you're sitting in this scene of the return of the king, we're going to go through a few different personalities and their individual stories with David returning as king. And we're going to apply this and look at it more from the stance of the different position our hearts can be in as we're looking for Jesus, our king, to return. So Shimei is the man that we saw earlier that day, as David was fleeing from Jerusalem, Shimei was up on a hillside and he was vulgarly cursing out David as David is leaving. He is throwing stones. He is kicking up the dust. One of uh, Abishai says, hey, David, you want me to go up there and kill him for you? And David says no, and all that's going on there. And we're going to watch Abishai want to kill him again. So it says, so this is this guy. So he's cursing David vulgarly as he's leaving. And now as David is coming back, he is the first one to show up there in confession. And it's awesome. But again, as we look in the culture, this may have been you and your position of Jesus Prior to him returning, prior to him coming in your life, you may have had that vulgar cursing out of who God is, of who Jesus Christ is, of the church, of believers. This is the position of a lot of human beings before they step into faith in who God is. So it says, now Shimei, the son of Gera, fell down before the king. So he comes in humility, falls down before David when he crossed over the Jordan. Then he says to the king, do not let my Lord impute iniquity, reckon iniquity, guilt to me, or remember the wrong, the twisting your servant did on the day that my Lord the king left Jerusalem, that the king should take it to heart. All that stuff that I said to you, David, please don't take it to your heart. Here I am in humility. Don't look at me as a guilty man. I'm looking to forgiveness for I, your servant, I know that I have sinned, therefore here I am, the first to come today of all the house of Joseph to go down and meet my Lord the King. But Abishai, the son of Zariah, again, this is another David's nephews, answered and said, shall not Shimei be put to death for this because he cursed the Lord's anointed? Literally the Lord's Messiah. And David said, what I have to do with you, you sons of Zariah, that you should be adversaries, that you should be Satan to me today. Shall any man be put to death today in Israel? For do I not know that today I am king over Israel? Therefore the king said to Shimei, you shall not die, and the king swore to him. So here again, David is not just sitting in the personal emotion of what this guy said against him. David is, has to sit in this position as king. As he is returning back, it is not in David's best interest to come in and start executing all of those who, who are in rebellion against him. The nation is in division and disunity. If he causes further division and disunity, it shows him weak as a believer in Yahweh. It shows him weak as a king and a leader. So as he's looking at Shimei and Shimei's behavior, he's taking everything at face value, the repentance, the confession, the words, and he pardons Shimei in this moment. Now, the long arc of Shimei's story is when David is on his deathbed in 1 Kings chapter 2, he looks at his son Solomon 
and he tells Solomon to take care of Shimei. David sat in the emotion and the anger, even though he is politically forgiving Shimei for his cursing and his abuse. David didn't forgive this man personally. Solomon gives Shimei the command. He says, you know what you did? You know my dad's forgiveness of you? If you ever step out of the gates of Jerusalem, you're dead. And Shimei says, I agree with you, and I'm totally okay with that. He has some servants that run away. He leaves the gates of Jerusalem and gets his servant back and comes back home. Solomon sends for him and says, hey, do you remember the words that came out of your mouth? You said, anytime that you leave the gates of Jerusalem, your life is forfeit. And Solomon executes Shimei. How do you deal with that in the return of King Jesus? I don't know, but that's Shimei's story. You're welcome. The Old Testament's hard. Again, so you read this at face value, look, here's a confession, here's a repentance, here's a forgiveness, but there's still a caution there. So this isn't just David as a man, this isn't just David imaging Messiah, this is also David as a king in the culture and all of the division and disunity that's continually going on behind the scenes. Totally different heart perspective is that of Mephibosheth. Uh, earlier on, I think it's in chapter 4 or 5, we're introduced to Mephibosheth, that he is a son of Jonathan, that when Saul and Jonathan die, that his maid takes him and flees, and she drops him. His feet break, and he's now lame his whole life. David, in living up to his covenant with Jonathan, brings Mephibosheth to his table daily to provide for Mephibosheth. He is uh, sitting at the king's table as one of his sons. When David is fleeing from Jerusalem for his life, Mephibosheth is betrayed by his servant Ziba, and that's the context that comes out here. So now Mephibosheth, the son of Saul, came to meet the king, and he had not cared for his feet, nor trimmed his mustache, nor washed his clothes from the day that the king departed until the day he returned in peace. And here's the issue. Ziba said that Mephibosheth is staying behind because Mephibosheth thinks that he as the descendant of Saul is now going to get reappointed as king. The description that's given for us here, if Mephibosheth was looking to present himself as a king, would he have taken care of his physical appearance? Absolutely. So what Mephibosheth did, as Absalom is there reigning in king, as king in Jerusalem for whatever short period of time that was, Mephibosheth is living in a visual posture of mourning and a visual support of David, which Absalom could have Mephibosheth executed for, and Mephibosheth is in full trust of David. What's being expressed here, too, is just the loyalty that's there. David has brought this man to his table as one of his own sons. And when David is leaving and he interacts with Ziba, he asks where Mephibosheth is because loyalty is expected as repayment for the favor that David has given to Mephibosheth. How ought Mephibosheth to respond to David? Out of continual loyalty, right? So the image that Mephibosheth gives to us, again, in all of our lameness and all of our brokenness, we've been invited to the king's table as the king's children, 
But in that relationship, there is a demand and an expectation for us to be loyal to our king. And that's the, the demonstration, the expression, the image that Mephibosheth's life is providing for us. So in verse 25, it says, So it was when he came to Jerusalem to meet the king that the king said to him, Why did you not go out with me, Mephibosheth? And he answered, My lord, O king, my servant deceived, my servant betrayed me. For your servant said, I said, I will saddle a donkey for myself that I may ride on it and go to the king because your servant is lame. He couldn't walk. And he, being Ziba, slandered your servant, me, Mephibosheth, to my lord the king. But my lord the king is like the angel of God. Therefore, do what is good in your eyes for all my father's house. Again, confession. I was a dead man. Before you, my lord, the king, you're the one who set your servant among those who eat at your own table. Therefore, what right have I to cry out any more to the king? So the king said, why do you speak any more of your matters? I have said, you and Ziba divide the land. Then Mephibosheth said to the king, rather, let him take it all inasmuch as my lord, the king, has come back in peace to his own house. And here's what's being expressed. David is asking him the question, because now here's Mephibosheth welcoming David back as king. David's questioning him, why didn't you come with me? Where was your loyalty? And Mephibosheth is saying, Ziba betrayed me, and he deceived me, and he's slandered me before you. He has this expression of mourning. He's there to welcome back the king. And Mephibosheth's heart attitude is just, it's solely based on this relationship with David. I was nothing before you. I was in hiding. I was put away. You were the one who sought me out, and you were the one who brought me into your presence to sit at your table and being provide, to be provided by you just like one of your sons. Such a powerful image of what it is for us as believers. And in this, David has already told Ziba that he could have Mephibosheth's property, right? So we saw that earlier on. So David has to honor that uh, decree as king. And now he is coming to light in regards to what, he's di what he did. So he's saying, you and Ziba divide all of this inheritance that you have as a son of Saul. And what's Mephibosheth's perspective? I don't need anything. All I need is you. I don't need the property. I don't need the reward. I don't need repayments. All I want is you as my king and to sit at your table. Such, such a Mephibosheth, the long arc of his story is an incredible picture and image for us of, how, of one of the aspects of our hearts and our position towards the Lord. We are promised that we are co-heirs with Jesus as believers. That means that all that is his, he has given to you freely in him for all eternity. We are told that there is a reward and a re recompense for what you do in service to the Lord in eternity. What does that look like? I don't have a clue, 
We're told that the crowns, the gifts that we are given, we see this imagery in Revelation of the elders that are before the throne. They are throwing their crowns down before the king in worship. It's one of those, we ought not to serve our king for what we get from him. We are to serve our king for who he is. He has already given us everything. He made us. He has saved us from our sins and from death. He has promised us eternal life in his presence. What is eternity in his presence? I don't have a clue, but the little taste that we get of it in the word of God, it is going to be awesome. And the awesomeness, it's not the streets of gold. It's not the jewels. It's the light. It's God. It's his love. It's his presence. It's that oneness. It's that relationship. It's being free from all darkness, all sin, which is all that he is, and all of his purity, and all of his holiness, and all of his glory. Let that be the motivator of why you want to sit at his table. Not for what he feeds you with, not for what he provides you with, not for all of the rewards that he has promised with you. That's icing on the cake, so to say. Let him and him alone, your king, your God, and your savior, be the motivator of everything that you do. And if that is true in your life, therein is great success. Because therein is freedom. There's the freedom to serve him as he leads. There's the freedom to love and bless and pray for your enemies because that's his heart. Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. I love Mephibosheth and all of his relationship with David. All right, Barzillai. Any of you who are aged, hey, Peter, this is for you, buddy, all right? Just so you know, I mock Pete's age all the time because I'm an obnoxious younger brother. So listen to what the Word of God says. Barzillai, the Gilead, Gileadite, came down from Rogalim and went across the Jordan with the king to escort him across the Jordan. Now, Barzillai was a very aged man, 80 years old. Isn't that just rude? He's got two more years left? All right, you got two more years of youth left. Sorry, I'm a punk, I know it. So I'm target preaching right now. <laughs> Sorry, this is the child in me that comes out sometimes when I read the word of God. But listen to the rest of this. This is kind of, there is an instruction in here for sure. It says, he, he had provided for the king with supplies while he stayed in Mahanaim, for he was a very rich man. So as David is coming out, fleeing from his son. They're fleeing without provisions. There are multiple men who meet David with provisions to sustain. So the period of time that David is in Mahanaim, Barzillai is one of the men who is providing for David, for his household, for the military that is there. He is a very wealthy man, and he's standing there in support of his king. I've mentioned before that, you know, the gospel is free, but no work of the Lord goes unfunded. It takes money. If you need to be educated, that takes finances. If you need to go into the mission field, that takes finances. Buildings take finances. Everything costs 
The gospel is free. But here you have a benefactor. Barzillai is a benefactor. When you sit in Jesus' public ministry, there are multiple women who are listed in Jesus' ministry as benefactors. And we see this continually through the word of God as those who are helping their brothers and sisters. So verse 33 says, The king said to Barzillai, You come with me, and I will provide for you when you are with me in Jerusalem. But Barzillai said to the king, How long have I to live that I should go up with the king to Jerusalem? I am today 80 years old. Can I discern between the good and the bad? And this is literally, as we age... You know, we're told that if you live this, in this time, there's a, I can't remember which one of the Psalms it's in, it says if you live to 70 years old, you've lived a good long life. You've lived a full life. You live another 10 years on top of that, you know, that's, that's an extra blessing. We're told, like, statistically in our age, if you're healthy at 50, you have roughly 20 to 25 years of health and workable mind and body to continue in the future, just statistics. So that's going to get you to roughly 70 to 75 years old in normal health. As we age, what happens? All of our bodies are going to break down because of death, because of sin, and this is what Jesus has freed us from. But here Barzillai is saying, I'm getting old, and my cognitive abilities, they're not what they used to be. David, you don't want me as a counselor because... I'm not very sharp anymore. I can't discern between good and bad. Not only that, can your servant even taste what I eat or drink? You want to provide for me all this rich food at your table? Man, I can't even taste anything anymore. And not only that, you're going to have, you know, the, all the, the, the singers and all that that come in. Can I hear any longer the voice of singing men and singing women? What? His body's breaking down. You're welcome, Pete. You can come punch me in the throat after the message. All of us have a day coming, right? The Bible tells us, number your days. There is wisdom in numbering your days. Should the Lord tarry? Should you be in good health now, barring any kind of accident or ill health? How many days do you have left? What are you going to do with your life? What's your goal? What's your motivator? These are great things for us to meditate on and allow the Holy Spirit to lead us in them. So, Barzilla says, why then should your servant be a further burden to my lord, the king? Your servant will go a little way across the Jordan with the king. And why should the king repay me with such a reward? Please let your servant turn back again that I may die in my own city near the grave of my father and mother. But here is your servant, Chimham. So this is his son. Let him cross over with my lord, the king, and do for him whatever seems good to you. And the king answered, Chimham shall cross over with me, and I will do for him what seems good to you. Now whatever you request of me, I will do for you. Great promise there as you sit in relationship with the Lord. You know, you honor him, you treasure him, you seek him, you keep knocking, you keep asking. It's the same promise that we have in the New Testament. Whatever you ask of him, you can have. If you're asking a miss... If you're asking for your own lust, for your own pleasures, for your own will, you don't want the Lord to answer those prayers. And you want to ask him not to answer those prayers. Because we pray to him, Lord, your will be done, not my will be done. But we have this incredible promise. If he's leading you, whatever you ask of him, whatever you need, he'll provide it. Awesome promises. And all the people went over the Jordan, 
When the king had crossed over, the king kissed Barzillai and blessed him, and he returned to his own place. And a final goodbye for a very important friend there. We're told, and again, in First uh, uh, Kings chapter 2, as David's given those final instructions to Solomon, he tells Solomon to continue to provide for Barzillai's household from the king's table because of Barzillai's loyalty here, and that carries on to next generation. Verse 40 says, Now the king went on to Gilgal, and Chimham went on with him, and all the people of Judah escorted the king, and half the people... And half of the people of Israel, just then all the men of Israel came to the king and said to the king, why have you crossed over with the brethren? Why don't you wait for us, is what they're saying. The men of Judah, they've stolen you away and brought the king, his household, and all David's men with him across the Jordan. So they're, they're coming in offended. Why did you bring the king across the Jordan River? Why didn't you wait for all of us to do this important event? Um, and there's, again, this disunity and tension. Verse 42 says, All the men of Judah answered the men of Israel, because the king is a close relative of ours. Why are you angry over this matter? Have we ever eaten at the king's expense, or has he given us any gift? Again, they're sitting there. They're defending their actions. It's David's not paying us. We're not doing this for that kind of attitude. Says the men of Israel answered the men of Judah and said, We have ten shares in the king, therefore we also have more right to David than you. Then why do you despise? Why do you uh, think that we're small in your eyes? Were we not the first to advise bringing back our king? Yet the words of the men of Judah were fiercer than the words of the men of Israel. This is kind of interesting in our own culture because here's what's going on at this time. There is a position, perspective, where people are looking at the king as solely an individual. And that's the tribe of Judah's perspective. We are his close relatives. He is our blood. This is an important relationship for us, and we are closer to David than you are because of who David is as a person. The ten tribes who have ten shares in David are looking at David as a position, as the king. They're saying, we have more right to him. We have more privileges because in a democratic thing, we have more shares. And you ought to have waited and not done anything without us. But Judah wins out because they're more fierce, whatever's going on. And again, the ten tribes, they were just against David, but so was Judah. So again, there's all this disunity, there's all this politics going on behind the scenes. Relating that to our culture, have you heard that that man is not my president? It's the same kind of attitude. There are some who look at the individual and say that the office of the presidency in our nation is based upon the, the individual, and there are many who look at it that the office of the president is the office of the president. Regardless of who's in that position, there is a respect for the office, and now we sit in the divisions of our own culture, and that's as deep in that mud as I'm getting. Chapter 20 says, And there happened to be there a rebel. This is a son of Belial, a son of worthlessness, whose name was Sheba, the son of Bichri, a Benjamite. And he blew the trumpet and said, we have no share in David. We respect the office. That man 
not my king. Nor do we have an inheritance in the son of Jesse. Again, calling him the son of Jesse rather than the king of Israel or the king of Judah is to diminish his position. Nor do we have inheritance in the son of Jesse. Every man to his tents, O Israel. Which is good that he didn't say every man to arms. So Sheba is not starting a military civil war here but he is starting a political civil war. In a couple of weeks, when we get into the rest of chapter 20, David's gonna kill him. Verse two, praise God we don't live back then. This was a violent age. Verse two says, so every man of Israel deserted David and followed Sheba, the son of victory, uh, Bichri, but the men of Judah from the Jordan, as far as Jerusalem, remained loyal to their king. Worship team, come on up. As the worship team's making their way up here, and as we turn our attention just to response and to communion, this very last sentence, you have the men of Judah remaining loyal to their king. This word for loyal means to cling, to hold, to stay, and to be joined. And this is a choice. And this is what's fascinating to me is David imaging for us Jesus as the Messiah, as the anointed eternal king of God. We are in that relationship with him. There can be many actions of Jesus that cause us internal confusion. We may lack perspective. We may latch on to a, a teaching of man that would say that Jesus is not my king or this teaching of Jesus is not for today, so we're gonna twist it and modify it and morph it for our time and for our culture. And we watch churchianity do that throughout the last 2,000 years. But every single one of us is continually exhorted out of the word of God to cling to your king, his nature, his character, his words, his timing, his program, his heart, his love. It's all about the man. Our God, who became a man, who is this Jesus, who died for our sins, who we worship, whose return that we are looking for and we are longing for, the constant exhortation is hold on to him. The division that we can see in the body of Christ, the divisions that we can see culturally, that can really bend us and twist us and make us feel like we have to latch on to other people's positions rather than just continually clinging to Jesus. The constant exhortation of the word of God is to look for your king. Look for him in his physical return, Look for him in his teaching and his word and his authority. Look for him and his spirit in your life. Look for him to lead you. Look for him to answer you. Look for his table to sit at. Look for his provisions. But in all of that, you're not looking for a theology. You're not looking for a system. You're not looking for just a teaching and a doctrine, an idea. You are looking for the man. The God who created the heavens and the earth, who became fully and truly man, is tabernacling in this flesh today. He resurrected physically from the dead. 
He ascended in that physical, eternal body, and he is going to return in that physical, eternal body. We are looking for him in all of his fullness. So as we turn to communion and worship, that's what we're remembering. So come during the first song, gather communion, and we'll pray together and have one, well, then another song of worship after that.